Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. (laughs) Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hi, everyone. And as listeners will know by now, Paulie, um, we've tried to avoid scoring obvious political points on this show. Yeah. And we prefer to concentrate on the lesser-known nooks and crannies of world history. But with what's happening in the Ukraine, it would be a failure on our part, I think, if we didn't try to at least shine some light into what is rapidly becoming a pretty dark corner. That's right, Mikey. Yeah, and obviously, we've talked in the Viking episode before, haven't we, about how this region, what today is the Ukraine, back in the beginnings, how it got to where we are now, you know, with the princes of Kiev being the dominant force in the region, you know, long before the Duchy of Muscovy, Moscow. But look, I don't want to really retread that old ground, particularly when there are so many other aspects of this story which are just as relevant to the points that are being debated today, but don't seem to be getting so much of a mention. Okay, you have mentioned the Principality of Kiev, but that's not exactly the same as Ukraine, right? Precisely, Mikey. Ukraine, as a name in historical terms, is actually relatively recent, yeah, and its literal translation is the deliberately ambiguous title, The Borderlands. A bit like we have the Scottish borders, the borders, the area separating England and Scotland, and then, you know, the marches, the Welsh marches separating England and Wales. Except, as we said, these are the borderlands to the north of the Black Sea, which form the centre of what was often called the Pontic Steppe. That sway the grasslands which stretch from modern-day Bulgaria, Romania, right across the top of the Black Sea to the Caucasus. Now, you see, everyone in these areas, they always know what these zones, if you like, are. But each side has very different opinions on exactly where on a map such zones technically start and stop. Because I suppose, like all buffers in history, Mikey, the whole point of the Ukraine, the whole point of these territories, historically, was that they would expand and contract to absorb or release pressure as the political climates of the day dictated. Now, just to be clear, Paulie, we're not saying that's an excuse for old hamster face to be doing what he's doing today. No, OK, of course not. Yeah, today we're talking modern nation states whereby yeah, the rules are very, very different. But historically, that is what happened because geographically, there's no obvious lines in this region which should naturally dictate where borders should or shouldn't be. That makes sense, because when you look at it, Ukraine only really has one one physical border, which is the Black Sea. Yes, that's right, Mikey. And yeah, you won't be surprised. I have brought a map in. Um, just one, I promise. <laughs> you know he's lying. There's going to be more. But as you can see here, yes, you've got the Black Sea and you've got some major rivers, but you haven't really got any real mountains and you've got no obvious boundaries. And that's why in the medieval times, the territories controlled by people like the Prince of Kiev, yes, they could quite rapidly extend hundreds of miles eastwards or southwards, but by the same token, the whole region could just as easily be swallowed up under the direct rule of external powers based a whole world away. You know, for example, in the 13th and 14th centuries, of course, you got the Golden Horde that we mentioned in that earlier episode with Marco Polo, you know, the Mongol superpower that took over the regions north of the Black Sea and north of the Caspian after the fragmentation of the Mongol Empire. 
And similarly, you know, later on in history, when you've got Muscovy, you know, Russia starting to push south towards the Black Sea and the Caucasus under Peter the Great and Catherine the Great. I'm glad you mentioned Catherine the Great, because we've got to clear something up. Remember we mentioned her a while back in the Horses episode? The Horses episode, yes. So we've had a few questions asked, and let's just get it over and done with. (laughs) Catherine the Great did not die whilst having sex with a horse. That's right. She died of a stroke whilst on the toilet. So Elvis style. She went Elvis style. But here's the point I'd like to make about that. Yes. It is part of a long tradition in Russian history Mm. of regime change and rewriting history. And not just Russian history either, Mike. It's this idea of you know, rewriting history after the event, you know, that's one of the key things we have to deal with. Exactly, mate. And in the case of Catherine, it does come down to her son, Paul. Mm. Now, Paul did not like his mother. Well, you know, he blamed his mother for his father's death. And, well, she was, sure. she was behind the coup that killed him. Yes. But also, too... As Catherine was getting older, she made it, she made it very well known publicly that she supported Paul's son, Alexander, and disdained her boy. Mm. To the point where when she dies of that stroke, the first thing Paul does is grab her will and testament and has it destroyed. Mm. In case there's any mention of succession passing down to Alexander. Right. He then goes about overturning all the reforms she's done, as well as telling all the stories about her libidinous behaviour. And let's be honest, yes, Catherine the Great was a very sexed person. She wrote about it herself. Yeah. But then again, so was Louis XIV. Sure. So was virtually every English king called George. Yes. The one obvious difference was she was a woman. That's right. She was a woman and the men were quite happy to pick on her. None more so than her own son. Apart from spreading these stories, he also sits about overturning a lot of her reforms. Yeah, not just her reforms, is it? A lot of these reforms have been brought about by another often misunderstood character in history, someone who I would argue was as much a hero as a howler, Gregory Potemkin. That's right, mate. But Paul, Catherine's son, and now the new czar... First off, he thinks that the Russian nobility has become too soft underneath her. Mm-hmm. So he tries to bring back this medieval concept of chivalry. It does not go down well. Yeah. Also, too, in regards of what we're talking about, Russian expansion, particularly into the south, he actually orders for all these forces to be withdrawn and for them to return back to bases within the old Russian borders. But he then goes out of his way to try and write Potemkin out of the history books. Mm. He overturns every reform Potemkin brought to the military, even right down to the uniforms. Potemkin had brand new, actually comfortable uniforms made for the soldiers. Right. But Paul makes them go back to the old ones. Ah. But it gets even weirder. At one point, he has Potemkin's skeleton dug out of the ground and the bones scattered into the forest. No way. Yes, mate. And as for Catherine, well, that's why we've ended up with a story about the horse. <laughs> right, too, too, Mikey. I suppose it all goes back to one of the golden rules of being a historian. When you hear a story being told... You've got to ask yourself, who's telling it? Precisely. And look, Catherine the Great, Potemkin, Peter the Great, they are all key to the Ukraine story. But today I want to go back right to the beginning before Muscovy, before the princes of Kiev, in fact, and back to a people who have not just been regularly forgotten by history, but at times deliberately written out of the history books are people who've been attacked, persecuted and disavowed time and time again. I'm talking about the Khazars. Welcome back. And in this episode, we're trying to contextualise, give a bit of background, not just the Ukraine, but this whole region to the north of the Black Sea and the Caucasus. That's right, Mikey, because let's face it, what's happening today, it's not just a simple story of Russia or the Ukraine, but it's a whole series of much 
broader questions. You know, Russia versus the West, post-Cold War, the breakup of the old USSR. You've also got fledgling states like Moldova and what calls itself the independent state of Transnistria on the left bank of the Dniester River. And of course, don't forget what's happening on Russia's other Black Sea coast on the other side. Yeah, you've still got major continuing conflicts in Chechnya, Dagestan, Ossetia, South Ossetia in Georgia. You know, there's so many questions that are still so far from settled. Yes, but mate, if we go into the Caucasus, Paulie, we'll never get out. <laughs> That's true. Which is basically what every general has ever gone in there said. But today you want to go back over a millennia. And I'm really keen to find out about this. Who were the Khazars? <laughs> All right, okay. So, so sadly, Mikey, unfortunately, you are right. Yeah, throughout history, this stretch of land, this region uh, around the Ukraine with its neighbours in the Caucasus has almost always been, you know, complex, to use a word, if you have not complicated. Mate, it's had issues. <laughs> right. So today, I haven't picked one person to be my hero or howler. Instead, I picked a whole people because I think in many ways their story epitomises just as what we as historians need to get our heads around before we start to think how we can rationalise and analyse what we think is going on now in the 21st century. So today I want to talk about the Khazars, and the Khazars are a semi-nomadic Turkic people who from the late 6th century AD onwards established a major empire, both political and commercial, covering this whole region that we're talking about today. Plus, sometimes it even gets so big it stretches right round the Caspian Sea into what's modern-day Kazakhstan. OK, before we go any further, the Khazars... You mentioned Kazakhstan. The Khazars are not Kazakhs, right? That's right, Mikey. Yeah, they're not. They're very, very different. You see, long before the Kazakhs made their way into Central Asia, long before Genghis and his Mongols came charging across Asia, taking everything and everybody in front of them, you had another empire which was just as important, just as successful, what we historians call the First Turkic Khanate, or the Gokturk Empire, which was primarily led by a clan called the Ashina. So they're Turks. Yes, we're talking Turks, Mikey, but we're not necessarily talking Turkey. You see, the land that we call modern-day Turkey, that was, in fact, more the destination, the end of the line, if you like, rather than the beginning. These Turkic tribes, they came, like the Mongols, out of the Mongol plains and out of the Mongol steppe. And they pushed west at an incredible pace, considering the lack of technology at the time. So we're talking the 6th century AD, right? Yes, the mid-6th century AD. So it's a time when, you know, Europe is pretty much falling apart. Britain, you know, it's just a mishmash of peasants throwing turnips at each other, you know, but... It's at precisely this time that these tribes of Turks, they're building an empire which will rule the whole of Asia. So we're talking all the way from Mongolia to our modern-day Turkey. Wow, that's, that's huge. Right, and that's why so many peoples in these regions still speak some sort of Turkic language to this day, be it in Turkey, Turkmenistan over in Central Asia. And most importantly for this story today, Mikey, there are still small pockets of peoples who are ethnically Turkic, speak Turkic, and live in the southern states of Russia, all the way to the Black Sea and the Ukraine. Even the Ukraine? Look, most of the Turkic communities were forcibly driven out of much of the Ukraine during the 20th century, unfortunately, you know, usually down into the Crimea area, the Crimean Peninsula. But in terms of culture and influence, yes, these centuries of Turkic peoples living in the region, this has had an impact which is still very much noticeable today. And this is all because of the Khazars. Right, it's these Khazars where it all started. You see, so in this vast area extending up from the steppes and the river systems of the Ukraine and southern Russia, you can see here, right down to the Black Sea, the Crimean Peninsula, and then across to the northern Caucasus, and even to the rivers feeding down into the Caspian. 
These are all lands which together will be known as Khazaria. Now, as I said, the Turks, they'd risen to power under one clan, the Ashina, but they were very much prepared to do deals with other tribes and let them either stay and control their original lands, as long as they recognise the Turks as their overlords, or, just as importantly, these Turks, they would back the tribes they met to go and carve out new territory which they could rule for themselves. As long as these tribes recognised the Turks, or the Turkics, as the ultimate big boss. Precisely. So, for example, yeah, you've got at this point the Bulgars coming into Eastern Europe, and then you've got the Khazars. They established their empire here, bang on the north shores of the Black Sea. And this is all going on in the 6th century. Yeah, we're now into the last decades of the 6th century. The Khazars seize their opportunity, they take control, they set up their own state, and the reason they've chosen this area, Mikey, is because even at this very early stage, it already controls a key arm on the emerging Silk Roads network, which we talked about before in that episode on the Kushans. So by controlling these areas, the Khazars control and are able to make money through you know, taxes and markups all the trade that's coming down from the north. Yeah, remember we talked about that in the Vikings episode, didn't we? All the furs and the timbers. Yeah, we talked about the furs and the timbers, but if there's one thing I do remember we talked about, it was slaves. Correct, slaves. And in many ways, Mikey, they are really the key to this whole story. You see, if now the Khazars control the area to the north of the Black Sea and to the north of the Caucasus, that means to the south they have two enormously wealthy potential trading partners and a whole string of bustling markets ready to buy their wares. Because, of course, over here in the eastern Mediterranean, what's modern-day Turkey, that's all under the control of the Byzantine Empire. Eastern Rome. Yeah, the eastern half of the old Roman Empire, which by now is preeminent under people like Constantine as the western Roman Empire falls apart. And then on down to the south, on the other side, what's modern-day Iraq and Iran, you've got the money pots of the old Persian Sasanian Empire, which are suddenly going gangbusters again under the newly emerging Umayyad dynasty. And as you just so rightly said, Mikey, these two empires, they don't just want fur and amber and timber from the north, they also want people because these are the world's biggest buyers of slaves. And of course, they've got plenty of Arabian silver and gold to pay for them. Ah, precious metals, the global currency, particularly when you're buying human lives. All right, so we're now in the 8th century, business is booming, and the Khazars have got a fast and efficient empire built up around this northern trade route, taking goods up beyond the Caucasus and the Black Sea. And then in 744, just when you think it can't get any better for the Khazars, the whole Turkic Khanate across Asia collapses. Ah, right. So no more overlords wanting a slice of the pie. That's it. And suddenly the Khazars find themselves top dog and they milk their position for the next two or three hundred years. In fact, they're so successful, Mikey, historians often refer to this period of Khazar domination as the Pax Khazarika. You know, since the state's become all-powerful, a bit like you know, Augustus's Pax Romana. And the key to it all, of course, is the Silk Road and the Silk Road merchants, because now they can rely on the Khazars for safe transit across this territory to pursue their business without interference. Well, that's amazing, because here we are in the 21st century, and I've got to say, probably almost everyone like me has never heard of them. That's right, but they have become the top dog, and they are the major powerhouse of their time. To give you an idea, Michael, there's this great story from Ibn al-Bali's Farsnama, which was written about... 1100 AD, and it tells how the Persian king places three thrones by his own, one for the king of China, the second for the king of Byzantium, and the third for the king of the Khazars. So we are talking the Khazars are at the top table. 
as big as any of their contemporaries. You know, at their peak, Mikey, the Khazars, they didn't just have a booming business. They had a central administration. They had a standing army of some seven to 12,000 men. And they could multiply that by two or three times quite easily by calling up the reserves from the Khazar nobles. The state is powerfully led by the Kagan. Hang on a second. Kagan. I reckon that's a new word for me, and I reckon it means king. (laughs) It does mean king, that's right. And the army, that's commanded by a subordinate set of officers known as the Tarkans. But the interesting thing is, Mikey, the troops in the army, they're mostly Karazan Muslims, which are basically mercenaries that the Khazars hire from their trading partners, the Umayyads. Don't tell me, let me guess, the Umayyads are paid for their service in slaves. Yes, these mercenaries may be paid hands, but they're serious, Mikey. They've got a reputation second to none. In fact, it was generally acknowledged they would never retreat under any circumstances. And even on those rare occasions when they were defeated, no one would ever dare to return because these soldiers of fortune, they knew that if any of them did, they would immediately be put to the sword. So, mate, we're talking the 8th century. So I'm assuming by now they're no longer nomadic steppe people. They've, they've put down roots. That's right. And they're ruling from their capital, which is the great city of Attil. Now, this is one of the wealthiest, most extravagant jewels in the Silk Road's crown at this stage. It's up there along with Samarkand or Bukhara. But in many ways, it's also a bit of a tale of two cities. You see, it sits on the Volga in the delta where the Volga meets the Caspian. And on the western bank, the new town, if you like, called Karazan, this is where the king and his Khazar elite, they dwell in their palaces along with a retinue of some 4,000 attendants. Oh, wow, not bad living. But on the other side of the river, in Itil proper, yeah, to the east, this is the home of the Muslims, yeah, the Muslim mercenaries we talked about, the foreign merchants, the foreign craftsmen, and also, and this is where it gets really interesting, This part of the city is also inhabited by a substantial, very influential community of Jews. Okay, folks, so in the 7th, 8th centuries, we're in that great swathe of territory to the north of the Black Sea and the Caucasus, what is modern-day southern Russia and the Ukraine. We're talking about this amazing empire of the Khazars and how they've carved this out for themselves in the wake of the fall of the old Turkic empires. And we're talking about how well they're profiting from all their neighbours. But when you've got these these plates of culture bumping up against each other, it was never going to be all peace and harmony, was it? That's right. You've also got, of course, the recipe for potentially massive conflict. You see, the Khazars, they may have always been firm allies of their Turkic neighbours, the Turkic tribes to the north and to the east. But when it came to their Byzantine and Umayyad neighbours, mutually beneficial trade could only go so far. The the Turkic tribes, remember Mikey, they shared a common religion with the Khazars. Tengriism, a sort of a form of pagan worship. Whereas the Umayyads, they're at the head of the newly emerged Muslim world. And the Byzantines were the leaders of Christianity, right. Sometimes the Khazars would try and play one off against the other. Sometimes they'd team up two against one. But eventually something had to give and they needed to face at least one of these powers one-on-one. So you get these series of wars, some versus Byzantium, some against the Muslim armies, and it's against the Muslim forces of the Umayyad Caliphate that things come to the most serious head. It's now 737, Mikey, and Marwan ibn Muhammad, or Marwan II, the leader of the Umayyad dynasty, he enters the Khazar territory, actually under the guise of seeking a truce. All right. Yes, you're right to be suspicious. He launches a surprise attack, the Kagan's forced to flee, and the Khazars surrender. In fact, the Kagan's told that if he wants to stay in power, he needs to convert to Islam, accept the Umayyads as his overlord, and pay tribute for the rest of his life. 
Okay, fair enough. But how does this go down with the Byzantiums? Well, that's it, Mikey. Of course, it doesn't suit their interests at all to let the Umayyads get such an upper hand. So almost immediately, you know, they're sending in financial and military support to try and shore up the Khazars. And sure enough, the Umayyad demands are rejected. In fact, the Byzantines also say the Khazars will be much better off converting to Christianity and coming in with them. So that brings us to 740 AD, Mikey. And it just so happens, fortunately for the Khazars, by this stage the Umayyads have got other problems elsewhere in their empire and are forced to withdraw. So now the Khagan, the king and the Khazar nobles, they have a big decision to make. Obviously, they would much rather hold on to their independence and keep power for themselves, but with their armies defeated... They're not holding on to a very strong hand. (laughs) Right. Now, initially, it looked like the Byzantine overtures would win the day, because over the centuries, some of the ties there had been quite close. For example, a few decades earlier, the Kagan and Busir, he'd taken in Justinian II when he'd temporarily been forced to flee and allowed him to marry one of his sisters. In fact, over the years, various Khazar princesses had converted to Christianity when marrying into the Byzantine court, and some of them had become very powerful through it. But as I said before, Mikey, the Khazars, their true religion, their native religion, if you like, is the old pagan Tengriism, which focuses on the sky god Tengri. And on top of that, they're still getting pressure from the Islamic world. They are getting pressure, Mikey, but as I said before, because of the setbacks in other parts of the Muslim empire, that's actually now a little bit on the wane. In fact, Marwan II, the guy who pretended to offer the truth and stab the Khazars in the back, well, he soon has the dirty done to him too. And he actually proves to be the last of the Umayyad Khalids because the whole of the Umayyad dynasty is about to collapse when he gets killed in 750. So what are they to do? Well, that's it. Do the Khazars stick with the old ways, their old religion? Or do they succumb to the pressure from the Muslim world? Or do they throw their lot in with the Orthodox Byzantines? And I have to say, Mikey, when I first read about the answer my Khazars decided on, it nearly blew my mind. And to be fair, folks, I didn't see this one coming either. In fact, it's one of the most bizarre twists I think we've ever had on the show. All right, so here it goes. We're in the middle of the 8th century. We're in the vast open spaces of the Pontic Steppe. We've got the Khazars coming under political and religious pressures from all sides. And suddenly this whole nation in what is today southern Ukraine and southern Russia, this whole nation incredibly converts en masse to Judaism and adopts Judaism as their national state religion. Judaism? I know, it's incredible, isn't it? But why? Well, look, obviously it saves them having to bow down to the Umayyads and it keeps them independent from the Byzantines. And, you know, with Judaism being one of the oldest religions and a religion of the book, they must have decided that it had enough status, was enough of a world religion to give them protection. And so do all the Khazars convert? I mean, the whole population... Or is this just a political gambit by the Kagan and his elite? Well, this is the big question, Mike, and that's the debate that's been raging amongst historians ever since. Because, of course, yeah, you've got other examples, haven't you, like in England during the Reformation. Yeah, sure, Henry VIII and his government convert, but most of the people on the ground, they're still very much Catholics with at least a small, if not a large, sea. And look, according to some of the contemporary observers, like the Persian traveller Ahmed ibn Rushtar, he does say in the 10th century that probably a significant proportion of the population does still remain following the old Turkic religion. But I've done some digging. I don't think we should automatically reject this out of hand. For example, back in the 4th century, a state in what is now the Yemen, it has been shown to have adopted Judaism across the board, And this Jewish state lasts right until the rise of Islam. So when it comes to the Khazars, 
Not only do we know for sure that the Kagan and his court converted, it has to make at least some sense that the rest of the population would have followed them. Certainly that's the story recounted in most of the other sources. For example, you've got the Iranian Judeo-Tats. They claim that their ancestors were actually responsible for this Khazar conversion. You've got the Khazar Moses coins found in the Spillings Hoard and dated to around 800 AD. It's inscribed with the words, Moses is the messenger of God, instead of the usual Muslim text of Muhammad is the messenger of God. And everybody agrees, historians from all the centuries, that Jews during this period, both from the Islamic world and from the Byzantine Empire, they're clearly known to have migrated to Khazaria during periods of persecution in their home states. So going back all those centuries, you have Jewish people fleeing persecution and actually travelling north to that part of the world we now know as the Ukraine. That's right. Khazaria, which is home to what is nowadays modern Ukraine and southern Russia, it welcomes these Jewish exiles. Now, look, we don't have any historical sources in the Khazar language, so we don't really have that many contemporary literary citations. But we do have people like Abraham Ibn Daud, who is the famous Spanish Jewish scholar for the 12th century. And he mentions encountering Jewish rabbinical students descended from the Khazars in Toledo in Spain in the 1160s. And we've got several medieval documents from Constantinople which attest to a Jewish Khazar community on the Asian side of the Golden Horde in what's now Galata, Istanbul. So how did the Khazars, this newly converted state, go? Well, for the next 200 years, Jewish or non-Jewish, the Khazar state thrived, thrived exponentially. But then by the end of the 9th century, like we mentioned in that earlier episode, you do get the Vikings and the Rus pushing down the great rivers from the north. And of course, all things do eventually have to come to an end, so much so that by the beginning of the 10th century, the Khazars really do find themselves fighting on multiple fronts. You've got the Khazar king Benjamin fighting battles against the allies of the five lands. You've got his son Aaron II. He's also caught in a pincer movement between the steppe Pechenegs and those Rus and Viking forces I mentioned. And things don't improve under the next king, King Joseph. Hang on, Paulie. You mentioned three kings, Joseph, Aaron and Benjamin. Now, they're pretty much Old Testament names. Well, that's it, Mikey. You know, like I say, the conversion of the Khazar kings to Judaism is beyond doubt, which is why I believe the chances that they took their people with them are pretty high. But the pressures piling in on the Khazar kings now are too great, and the end is nigh. So between 965 and 969... The Kievan prince Sviatoslav, he conquers the Khazarian capital, Atal, and he ends the Khazar independence. And unfortunately, Mikey, he does it pretty brutally. So much so that we've got this commentary from a guy called al Mukadasi writing in around 985, and he describes how the whole of what had once been the prosperous Khazaria has become a district of woe and squalor. But interesting, Mikey, he also mentions it's a land of honey, sheep, and Jews. So as far as these contemporaries were concerned, not just the kings and the elite, but the whole of the Khazar people had converted. Precisely. But like I said, this prince Sviatoslav, he was pretty (laughs) brutal. It seems within decades, most of the native Khazars, Jewish or not, had been driven out from their homeland. All right, folks, so there you go. Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media. Same as usual, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hist. The rest is hist. 
and you'll find all that in the show notes. And whenever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always great to get your feedback. Yeah, keep it all coming. We're having lots of fun out there, lots of extra stories. And maps. There's always more maps. <laughs> right, which brings us to next week. And folks, next week we've got a whole clinker-built ship full of extra helpings. Mm-hmm.